Father, we are grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful for these, these stories that come from, from centuries and centuries ago, but are living because your spirit makes them living. Father, we pray that the truths that are within your word, that are within this story, uh, would become truths that we can rely on, that we can embrace, and that we can live out daily. We thank you again in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One of the things that I really like about preaching is that you get to be in, in both services. You know, I, I really like being in the first service where the traditional hymns are sung in a traditional way. And then I really like coming into the second service and watching Doobie beat on the drums and you know, the bass and the guitars and the, the contemporary songs. I, I love them both. Not just because I love both expressions of worship, but because I like both styles of music. I have pretty eclectic musical tastes. It runs from folk all the way to hard rock, uh, from blues to heavy metal. Uh, if you stop by the church sometime and my door's closed, it's not because I'm trying to be antisocial, at least not usually, sometimes though. Um, it's usually because I'm in a heavy metal mood and I don't want Metallica wafting down the halls of the, you know, the, the church here. Um, I like virtually every kind of music except one country. Uh, I get enough whining and complaining for my kids, I don't need it for my radio too. So I, I typically skip, not typically, I always skip over the country stations. But there was a, about a year in my life where I was really enamored with country music. I was 18, I bought my first pickup truck, and I thought country music came with a deal. Uh, and so I was really into country music for that year. Um, and I remember one song from that time. It was a Garth Brooks song called Unanswered Prayers. Anyone remember that one? A few nods of, of recognition. It was a, kind of a cheesy song. Most country songs are. Uh, but it, it was about Garth Brooks and his wife, and they go back to a high school football game, and he runs into his old high school flame, and they're, they're reminiscing and remembering old times. And then the chorus kicks in, and I thank God for unanswered prayers. He'd been praying during those times in high school that this would be the girl that he'd spend the rest of his life with. And he says, you knew better than I knew. I thank you for that unanswered prayer. My life's better now than it would have been. Thank you for the unanswered prayer. Okay, I know this is a stretch, but the story we read and the story that we're going to look at in chapter 6, they, they kind of point to the same folksy kind of wisdom of that Garth Brooks song. Now you don't see that now, and it's not evident, I understand that, but, but stick with me. In both the story of Naaman and in the story of Elisha's deliverance from the Syrian army, you see God's power. He's a, a big God. He commands armies, he heals. You see his grace, and you see his sovereignty. He can heal, he can deliver, but he doesn't always. Sometimes those prayers go unanswered. And you see that in, in, when you look at these two stories together. Yeah, first story, the story of Naaman, is a really surprising story. Uh, if you were an ancient Israelite and you heard this story being told, you read it and you, said, or, and you heard that Naaman was a commander of the army of Aram, or of Syria, some versions say, same thing. 
you're, you're set up immediately to think, okay, he's the bad guy. Syria or Aram was an enemy of Israel. They were often at war. Syria was often raiding and pillaging Israel. So these weren't the good guys. So you're not prepared for what you read next. Because he's a commander in the Syrian army, and he's a great man, held in high esteem, because through him the Lord, Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel, had given victories to Aram, to Syria. What? (laughs) This man, a commander in an enemy army, has been given victories by our God, even over us? This is a surprising story. It goes on and says he's a valiant warrior, a valiant man, but he has leprosy. Uh, The word there, leprosy, is actually a word that in the ancient world was pretty vague. It covered a lot of different kinds of skin conditions, but we know his condition, well, it wasn't good. Right? I mean, he was going looking for healing. What exactly the condition was, we're a little uncertain of. But he's, he goes and he needs healing. Now, the next verse, verse 2 of chapter 5, confirms that, yep, name's one of the enemy. It, it says that they'd gone on a, a raiding run into Israel, and they came back with a young girl that they had basically kidnapped. And this kidnapped young girl was now serving as a servant in Nahum's house to his wife. She knows that Nahum has leprosy and she thinks to herself and says to her mistress, if only he'd go to Samaria. There's a prophet there that can heal him. Now this girl is a really surprising young girl, isn't she? I mean, she's been kidnapped from her house, taken from her family, taken from her land, taken away from the worship of the true and the living God, but she remembers, and she shows a great kindness to Naaman. See, if it was me, I'd be thinking, if he only knew about that prophet that could heal him, but I ain't going to tell him. (laughs) But she tells him, And, and Naaman goes to the king of Syria and says, I've heard about this prophet in Samaria, they can heal me. And the king says, by all means, go. I'll send a letter with you. So apparently at this time, there's kind of a a truce, it seems like, between Syria and Israel, because the king was able to send his general to the king of Israel without fear of him being captured or killed. But it's an uneasy truce. When, When the king of Israel gets the letter, he says, who am I? Why are you sending me your your servant, your general, to be cured? Am I God? Can I kill and make alive? Why are you trying to pick a fight with me? See, in the king of Israel's mind, he's just being set up. He's being set up, told to do an impossible thing, heal a leper. So he tears his robes. He says, they're just trying to pick a fight. They're trying to start a war. But Elisha hears this and says, well, Send him to me. Then he'll know that there's a prophet of God in Israel. So Naaman goes, and he's got a letter from the king. He's got truckloads, I mean literally truckloads of gold and silver and clothes to give as a reward for being healed. He goes to Elisha, but Elisha doesn't even come out and greet him. 
Elisha sends a messenger and says, here's what you need to do. Go take a bath in the Jordan River. Do it seven times. Naaman's pretty put off by that. He's an important man in Syria. And he's used to being treated as an important man. And here the prophet won't even come out and address him. Won't even come out and greet him personally. He just sends a messenger. And then he sends him on this errand. Go wash yourself. He says, I could have done that in Syria. He needed to come out. He needed to address me. He needed to wave his hand over my leprous spot. And then I'd be cured. He leaves. His pride's been offended. He's upset. It says he's in a rage. But his servant comes to him and says, Naaman, if the prophet had told you to do something extraordinary, you would have done it. So why not do this simple thing and go bathe in the Jordan seven times, that dirty, nasty river? Just do it. So he does. And he comes up the seventh time and his skin is restored. He's healed. Not not just his skin, but now he has a change of heart. He, he goes back to Elisha, and he's willing to give him this gold and the silver and these clothes. Elisha says, no, I don't need that. But Naaman's heart's been changed. He, he's been humble. He's not that proud man anymore. He says, now I know there is no God but the God of Israel. He becomes a confessor, a, a worshiper of the true and the living God. It's a great story. Now let's take a a look at, we're not going to read the next story, but in chapter 6, there's another really cool story. In in chapter 6, let's see, it starts in verse 8. It says, now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. Okay, so this is the same group. The same group of people, the Aramites or the Syrians. We don't have any kind of time marker on this. It doesn't say sometime later or sometime before. It just says on one occasion. Or now this is what's happening. I don't know if you're curious. I'm really curious. If this was before Naaman's healing, was Naaman a part of these wars? If it's after his healing, it comes after in the chronology of 2 Kings. It's the next chapter. Is Ahim still a part of these warring bands? Or is he retired? <laughs> Doesn't tell us. It's really not important. Important. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's not important to the point <laughs> of this story. The king of Syria is waging war against the king of Israel. And he keeps laying these traps, laying these ambushes. He makes his camp here and he waits for the king of Israel to come by, ready to pounce on him. The problem is the king of Israel never goes that way. He keeps getting warned, don't go that way. There's an ambush waiting for you. The Syrian king is enraged by, there's a lot of rage going around. He's enraged by this. He says, who in my camp is a traitor? Who here keeps tipping off the king of Israel? And all the men say, it's not us. It's Elisha, the prophet. He tells the king words you whisper in your bedroom. He knows, and he's the one that keeps tipping off the king of Israel, so he keeps slipping through your fingers. Well, the Syrian king says, okay, we got to capture Elisha. 
So he goes and he finds that he's at the city called Dothan, and he sends a strong force, an army, with horses and chariots to Dothan. And they come to the city at night, they surround the city. The next morning, Elijah's, Elisha's servant wakes up and says, oh master, this isn't good. The city's surrounded, the Syrian army has come for you, what are we going to do? Elisha says, don't be afraid. There's more with us than are with them. And then Elisha prays, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw that in the hills surrounding the Syrian army was another army, an angelic army with chariots, chariots of fire. Then Elijah prays again. He says, okay, God, you've opened my servant's eyes. Now close their eyes. Make them blind. And God does. God closes, blinds the the Syrian army, and Elisha goes out and says, this isn't the right place. Come with me. And he leads him to a different city, to the city of Samaria, where the Israelite army is, where the king of Israel is. The king of Israel is pretty stoked about this. You've just delivered a large portion of the Syrian army to me. What should I do? Should I kill him? Elisha says, no, don't do that. Feed him. Feed him and send him home. And so they throw a feast, is the word that's used. They throw a feast for the enemy army and send him back home. That's a cool story. I mean, right, chariots of fire surrounding the enemy army. You're protected by angelic hosts. It doesn't get much better than that. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us today? What do we learn about about God? About the kind of God he is and, and how we're to relate to him? Well, there's three things, I think. There's always three, right? Uh, three attributes of God that I think are really highlighted in these two stories. I told you what they were already. His power, his grace, and his sovereignty. I mean, God shows up here in a powerful way. At least two times, right? He shows up as the God who heals. He shows up as the God who can heal leprosy. The king of Israel says, I'm a powerful man, but I can't do that. I'm not God. I can't kill and bring back to life. But God can. God can heal. And God can deliver and God can protect. He commands angel armies. He is Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He protects his people. He is, well, let's just put it this way. Nothing is even difficult for God. He truly is almighty. Nothing's hard. Nothing's challenging. When you're almighty, everything is easy. He is a powerful God. What does that mean for us, though? How how do we respond to that? Well, we trust and we rely on his power. Let me ask you, when you pray, do your prayers reflect a belief in the power of God Almighty? Or do you, like me, waffle 
in how you pray. Uh, sometimes doubt that God could do it. I know sometimes as I'm praying, I'm thinking, God, I know this, this is a big one. No, it's not. There are no big requests. They're difficult for God. He's all-powerful. The levels of difficulty don't apply to an almighty God. The story, these stories, I think, remind us that it is proper to ask. He is powerful, and it's proper to ask him to bring that power to bear in our lives for us on our behalf. It's proper. It is honoring to God to ask him to heal, to ask him to protect. Now, I, I look at my family and, and how we pray, and it's possible that our prayers are too dominated, maybe, by prayers for healing, prayers for protection, but it's proper that we do pray for healing and protection. Sometimes we're praying that bug bites heal. More often we're praying for, for grandpa. Grandpa and his upcoming surgery. Grandpa and his dialysis. Grandpa and, you know, help grandpa. Heal grandpa. That's important. That's God honoring. God is powerful and he can heal. And I think we pray for protection virtually every day. I pray that God will protect my kids from me. I pray that God will protect me from my kids. More and more as they're getting older, you know, they hurt now. We pray for protection as we drive, as we play baseball. We pray for spiritual protection, that God would guard our hearts against sin, against the influences and the temptations of, of the devil. That's good. That's proper. This story reminds us that God is a powerful God who can answer those prayers. He can do that. He can heal. He can protect. But it's not just his power that's on display in these stories. It's also his grace. Grace in these stories comes to those who are outside the camp. They're not a part of the people of God. Grace comes to Naaman, who is a foreigner, an enemy of Israel, and a leper at that. He's outside the camp. He, he's unclean in so many ways. And yet God's grace comes to him in, in the form of healing that leads him to a confession that God, the God of Israel, is the only God. I remember when I got to visit my, my parents in Fiji. They served there for, for six years as, as missionaries. And, and I met a fellow pastor. My dad worked with this Fijian pastor his story was remarkable. Uh, when he was a kid, he was deathly ill. That's not an exaggeration. He was on his deathbed. High fever for weeks and weeks and weeks. Nothing was helping. His parents had taken him to the tribal doctors. I don't know if witch doctor or medicine man would be the appropriate word, but not traditional medicine. And nothing was working. He just kept getting worse and worse and worse. In desperation, they said, okay, finally, let's try the, the missionary in our area. So they, they took their son and asked the missionary to, to pray for their son, and he recovered. And the family all became believers in Jesus Christ. And he became, the son who was healed became a pastor. That's an amazing story of grace being showed to someone who is outside the camp. 
not a believer, and through that grace being welcomed in to the body of Christ. God does that. He extends grace even to foreign armies who are the enemies of his people. He extends grace. He feeds them instead of destroys them. Gives them a feast and sends them home. It's easy to see grace in that. But don't miss the fact that Elisha, the prophet of God, is every bit as reliant on grace as Naaman, the pagan. Elisha had no footing to demand anything of God. He had no footing to say, God, I'm your servant, this is what you owe me now. God is not a debtor to Elisha, to Elijah, to Paul, or to us. We stand as beneficiaries, as utter dependents on grace. We need to remember that it's very appropriate to pray for healing, to pray for protection, but not as though God owed it to us. That's the wrong posture. The wrong posture, the right posture is, God, you are so gracious, I ask for more grace in this way. Heal, bless, protect. You see God's power, you you see his grace, but you also see his wisdom and sovereignty. God can heal, he's powerful enough. He's gracious enough, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he, he doesn't heal. Sometimes he doesn't protect. Naaman's story is fantastic. God heals of leprosy. But not every story goes that way. The Apostle Paul struggled with a thorn in his flesh. Commentators debate what exactly that was. But he prayed, Lord, take it from me. And God said, no. Nope, not going to take it from you, but I'll show you that my grace is sufficient for you even in the midst of it. In your weakness, my power, my grace is made perfect. There's lots of people through the history of the church that have struggled with debilitating illnesses, diseases, and I'm sure they've prayed for healing and haven't received it. Luther suffered from painful intestinal problems. Charles Spurgeon, one of the best preachers ever in the history of the church, had debilitating bouts of depression and painful gout, and he prayed, and God said, nope, I'm not going to heal you. Not now. Jonathan Edwards died of smallpox. I'm sure he and his congregation and his family were all praying for healing, and God said, no, not this time. The personal level... My dad, uh, we've prayed for healing and restoration for him for about a decade now. Yeah, serving as a missionary in Fiji sounds fantastic. I mean, doesn't it, right? I mean, if you've got to serve as a missionary or go to Fiji, except for dengue fever and hepatitis. That's bad. And my dad came back with both of those things, and it ruined his liver, and he had a liver transplant, and he's never been in good health since then. Now the kidneys are gone, and his dialysis, now his heart's going, and it's just... And we've prayed and we've prayed and people literally across the globe have been praying and, and God said no. Not now. 
we're, we're going to keep praying, so maybe eventually it'll be a yes. But for now, it's no. Or my brother, he's suffered from epilepsy since he was 11, so like 25 years now. Seizures virtually every week, and we've prayed, and people have prayed over him, and, and the answer's been no, I'm not going to heal. Not now. If you're keeping notes, you realize I don't come from really healthy stock, right? I mean, bad news for me, but the answer sometimes is no. I'm not going to heal. And, and sometimes it's no, I'm, I'm not going to protect. Elisha's story, and the, those chariots of fire, that's outstanding. But balance that with Jeremiah's story. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet, and he wasn't a very popular one. The king didn't like what Jeremiah had to say, so he threw him in a cistern that was muddy, and he just left him there to die. He's rescued out of the cistern, but he ends up being taken basically captive into Egypt. Yet Daniel gets protected in the midst of the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get protected in the fiery furnace. But John the Baptist gets beheaded. Peter gets rescued from prison. That's a great story. You know, the angel shows up and the, he gets set free. Well, yeah, for a while. Then he's crucified upside down. Paul and Silas, another angel, shows up. Great story about how they're set free in that earthquake from prison. Oh, but he ends up in Rome in prison and martyred. Sometimes God rescues. Sometimes God protects. Sometimes God says no. You see that in this story. Yes, God rescued Elisha. But what about that young girl in chapter 5? The Syrian army came. I'm sure the people in her town were praying, save us from the Syrian army as they're raiding. But no. She's taken captive. She's taken prisoner. She's kidnapped. And taken to Syria. And then you read, and it's God. It's, it's God that gave the victory to Naaman in his battles. Why? Well, if God can heal, if he's powerful enough, and he's gracious, if he can do it, and he can protect, why doesn't he always do it? Well, sometimes... It serves God's bigger purpose, his mission, his global cosmic mission. You see that with this young girl who gets kidnapped. Her prayer went unanswered for deliverance, for protection, but it served God's purpose because now she's able to point Naaman back to the prophet, back to God. Tertullian, the early church father, said that the blood of the martyrs is often the seed of the church. Where martyrs aren't protected from persecution, and they suffer, and they die. Well, God's church often grows and flourishes as a result. So sometimes, God doesn't offer that protection or that healing to serve his global purpose. Sometimes he does it as a blessing in our lives. We think healing. Healing, that's the blessing. And God says, no, there's something better that I have for you. Better than physical health. I want to teach you character. I want to teach you perseverance. 
I want to teach you dependence on me in the midst of this. That's better for you than physical wellness or protection. I want to keep you from sin. I know that if I answered this request, it would lead you down a path away from me and into sin. So I am going to say no. Sometimes it is for punishment. Sometimes God says, no, I won't heal. No, I won't protect. Your sin has brought this. We're going to see that play out in the course of Israel's history. We'll see it next week. God says, I withdraw this protection. I'm sending Syria. I'm sending Assyria. I'm sending the Babylonians. I'm sending the Persians. I'm sending the Greeks. I'm sending the Romans. They're arms of, they're instruments in my hand of discipline and punishment. Sometimes it's all three of these things and more all mixed together. And we can't comprehend everything God is doing when he doesn't answer our prayers, when he doesn't heal, when he doesn't protect. But we rely on his wisdom and on his sovereignty. These things, his his grace, his power, his sovereignty, they're put on beautiful display in these two stories. But they're only a prelude a prelude to the majestic display of his power and grace and sovereignty on the cross. Have you ever thought about the cross as a result of Jesus' unanswered prayers? As Jesus was looking down the road towards the cross, he said in John, Father, save me from this hour but more importantly, glorify your name. And then in the garden, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but more importantly, your will be done, not mine. It's a wonderful model for how we ought to pray. God, heal, but more importantly, your will be done. God, protect, but more importantly, glorify your name. But the cross, in a way, is a result of unanswered prayer. And it's a display of his power, of God's power, as he conquers sin and death and darkness and Satan. And it's a result of his grace, the display of his grace, as he extends healing and forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. As we think about these two stories and the healing and the protection, our minds ought ought to go to the cross too, where our healing and our deliverance is ensured. On the cross, Christ takes our wounds. He takes our infirmities. He takes our guilt and our shame, and he brings life, and he brings wholeness, and he promises that his people will never be plucked from his hand with an understanding of the cross, with an understanding of God's power and grace, with this stories from kings as a backdrop, we ought to go boldly to God, making bold requests of him, because nothing's difficult. But we go in that posture of grace-dependent sinners. We don't go demanding. We don't go 
as though God were obligated to us. But we go. We go knowing he's powerful, but also understanding that he's wise and sovereign. Sometimes the yes is a wonderful blessing. And sometimes the no is. We go with a full confidence that everything, everything that happens to us, God is working it for our eternal good. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful again for your word. We pray that it would do its work as though it was living in us, that it would comfort, that it would convict. Father, we do pray that it would change how we understand prayer, how we understand making requests to you. Father, we know that you're powerful. We know that you're gracious. We pray that you would help us to trust that you're wise and sovereign as well. Father, we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.